You know, we've come through this week of Thanksgiving and everybody uh, hopefully had a had a good time and has had an uplifting and encouraging time of Thanksgiving with family or friends or or whoever that that you were with. But have you ever been around anybody that's just a downer? I mean, just just a gloomy person. I'm sure that some of you, when I said that, somebody came to your mind. <laughs> you know, it's like you're you're walking in a room of sunshine, and all of a sudden, when they come in, it's like a dark cloud just goes over the over the sunshine. No matter what happens, no matter what's going on, it could be the best day, it could be the best whatever, and that person will always find something. It's like they have to look hard and like they have to work really hard sometimes to find something to complain about. You ever been around anybody like that? You know, whether they're complaining about their health or their circumstances or their church or their community or even the weather, something is always doom and gloom with some folks. Well, I got to tell you, um, I don't like to be around people like that. Those are the kind of people that when you see them coming, sometimes you want to you know, if you see them coming in Walmart, you want to duck around the end cap. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. I'm not the only one. I, I saw the look on your faces. But you don't like to be around people like that. But on the other hand, there are some people that are an absolute ray of sunshine. That no matter what is going on in their life or no matter what's going on in your life, when you see them, Man, they just, they're just full of encouragement, full of life, full of vigor. I'm not talking about fake people. I'm not talking about those kind of fake people that, you know, just like blow sunshine at you. And no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are genuinely positive, who, who are just genuinely encouraging to be around. And I'm sure when I start describing that, there's somebody that comes to your mind, just like somebody came to your mind with the negative person. I love being around people that are encouraging, don't you? It's like they just charge your batteries, don't they? It's like they they fill you up. I'd much rather be around encouraging people than discouraging people, wouldn't you? And I'd much rather be an encouraging person than a discouraging person. You know, as I was putting this message together and I was reading the passage and studying the passage... There were times of conviction that I was going through this thinking, you know, which one of those am I? I I want to be that encouraging person. I want to be that ray of sunshine. But I think all too often, negativity comes out. I hope that's not the case. Our, Our passage this morning is all about encouragement. This morning we, we find ourselves with Paul back in a, in a town called Troas. Now, if you've been here with us for a while, you remember we've been to Troas once before. Back early on in the second missionary journey, you remember that, that back in chapter 16, you remember that Paul and his crew, they, as they started out on that second missionary journey, they really wanted to go south into Asia, into Asia Minor. But the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go down that way. So they changed their mind. They said, okay, let's go north into Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go there either. So they couldn't go south and they couldn't go north. So they just kept heading west and they kept heading west and they kept heading west until they got to this town of Troas. This town of Troas, which was right there on the coast. In other words, they couldn't go north, they couldn't go south, so they kept heading until they couldn't head any farther right there on the coast. 
that little town called Troas. And it was there in Troas that God gave Paul, it was when he was there at the end of the road that God gave Paul this vision to head across the pond into Macedonia. To head across the pond into Macedonia where he planted those magnificent churches in Philippi and in Thessalonica and in Berea. But before God gave him that vision, before God showed him where he needed to go, Paul had to get to the end of the road. And that's where Troas seemed to them. It seemed like they had gone as far as they could. It seemed like they were at the end of the road. All they had in front of them was water. But God spoke. And He opened the door to all the things that happened during the second missionary journey and during the third missionary journey, which He's wrapping up here. You think about it. What at the time seemed like a dead end was really just a launch point. What at at the time seemed like a dead end there in Troas turned into churches being planted in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth and Ephesus and Colossae and Hierapolis and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. There's probably more that I might have missed or that aren't mentioned in Scripture, but you think about all of those churches that were planted after it seemed like a dead end. God took what seemed like a dead end at the time and He used it as a launch point for probably the most fruitful time of Paul's ministry on earth. God loves to do that, doesn't He? God loves to take those times when we think that we're absolutely up against the wall and turn those from a dead end to a launch point. Listen, don't ever, don't ever think that God is done with you. Don't ever think that God can't use you. Don't ever think that you have gotten to a point in your life that is such a dead end that He doesn't have fruitful ministry still waiting for you because He does. What seems like a dead end in your life might just be the point where He wants to get you to so that He can launch you into whatever He has for you later. Like I said, this morning we find ourselves back at that place that had been the dead end. We find ourselves back at that place, Troas. And I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a mistake or a coincidence that Paul decides to wrap up his third missionary journey at the place that had seemed like a dead end. He's going back to the place where God had launched them. And here as Paul is beginning to wrap up his church planting ministry for good, just in these, these verses that we're looking at today and the verses that we'll look at in the, in the next couple of weeks, Paul is wrapping up his church planning ministry for good. And now as he gets to this point, it was here, it was back at this dead-end place, it was back at this launch point place that Paul sets out to encourage all of those people who were going to take the reins from him and continue on in the church planting ministry in those mission fields. You know, one of the things that you can say about Paul's, you can say a lot of things about Paul's ministry, but one of the things that you can say is that Paul was always engaging in an encouraging ministry. He was always looking to encourage folks. One of the things, whenever I start talking about ministry, whenever I start talking about Paul's ministry or uh, the ministry of the church or anything like that, automatically folks start looking 
thinking that we're talking about somebody else. If you think, well, you know, ministry, we're talking about what the preacher does or what the deacons do or what somebody else does. We've talked about this enough that I hope that you remember that each of you who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior are called to ministry. Each of us is called to ministry. Ministry isn't just something that Paul was called to do. Ministry isn't just something that the pastor or the deacons are called to do. If Jesus has saved you, each of you are called to ministry. So just like Paul was called to have an encouraging ministry, each of us who've trusted Jesus are called to that same kind of encouraging ministry. In our passage this morning, we see three signs of an encouraging ministry. First, an encouraging ministry is built on real relationships. Well, we've never heard that before, have we? The reason that we've heard that a lot is because it's Scripture is replete with the understanding that we are called to have real relationships. Look back at verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples... And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was set, as, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was set about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Um, one of the things when, when I asked Ben earlier in the week to read the the passage uh, for this week, I wasn't even thinking about all these wonderfully beautiful names that, that are listed here, um, but I, I just reminded him, I said, Ben, just say them quickly and with confidence, and everybody will think that you know how you're pronouncing them, right? So if you think that I know how to pronounce these names, um, no, I just say them quickly, right? So that's, that's, uh, that's just kind of a little, kind of a little secret. But this is one of my f- absolute favorite scenes in the book of Acts. I love, I, I've loved our study through the book of Acts because we have all these wonderful, wonderful scenes of things going on. And I hope that you're able to turn on your imagination to picture what you're seeing here. But this is one of my absolute favorite scenes here because for one last time, Paul gathered in these first few verses, he's gathering the church that he pastored in Ephesus. And you remember from what we looked at before that Ephesus was the place where Paul pastored longer than any other place. As a matter of fact, all the other places, it seemed like he functioned more as a church planter than he did as a pastor. But in Ephesus, he poured out his heart to them as pastor for three years. And here in these first couple of verses, he, he gathers this church that he pastored in Ephesus for the last time as their pastor. And notice what he did when he gathered them together. He focused on encouraging them. That that word that's used there, that word that's translated encouraged there in verse 1, it's the same exact word that Jesus used in John chapter 15 and John chapter 16 to describe the work of the coming Holy Spirit. 
It's the word that that means to come alongside. It means it's the word that means helping. It's the word that means comforting. That's what Paul was doing. He was encouraging. He was coming alongside. He was comforting. He was encouraging the church. And he headed back through the churches that he planted after he left Ephesus. He headed back through the churches that he planted in Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi. And he was doing the same thing there. He was comforting them. He was helping them. He was encouraging them. And he did the same thing in Corinth. And just before he headed back home to his home church in Syrian Antioch, he stopped there in Troas. And when he was in Troas, to a fully cooperating group of Southern Baptists, I think that this passage ought to just light our hearts on fire. Because it's like he gathered all of these folks from all of these different churches in one spot, and, and I liken it to him having the first missions conference right there in Troas. Look at the group that was gathered there. Sopater the Berean. You remember the Bereans, right? The Bereans, Luke recorded in Acts that the, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Now Paul loved the church at Thessalonica, but the reason that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they heard everything that Paul said and they listened to him with, they listened to his preaching with eagerness but they went back to the Scriptures to make sure that what he said was so. And here's Sopater, the Berean. He's probably one of their pastors. Now, I don't know that for sure, but that's just my speculation. And then there was Aristarchus and Secundus. They were from the church at Thessalonica. Their names tell us a little bit about their background. Aristarchus, that that carries the idea that he was a blue blood. He was a highbrow. He was from aristocracy. He was of noble birth. And look who he was paired with. A fellow named Secundus. What's that look like in English? Looks like second, doesn't it? See, there were a whole group of people during that time who were given the title Secundus. It wasn't a name. They were slaves of such a menial rank that they weren't even worthy of having a name. They were the second class of the lowest class. And look who's paired together. Aristocracy and a slave that's not even worth having a name. But they're paired together. They are brothers in Christ in the church at Thessalonica. Jesus saved them, and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen? Jesus saved those men, and they were brothers together in the church at Thessalonica. There's a fellow named Gaius. Gaius was from the church that Paul and Barnabas planted way back up in the first missionary journey in that town called Derby. Timothy was from Lystra, and Timothy had been with Paul on and off since the start of his second missionary journey. We don't know anything about this fellow named Trophimus, except that his name's hard to pronounce. And he was probably from one of the churches that had been planted in Asia Minor out of the church at Ephesus. So it was probably one of the churches that had been planted by the membership of the church at Ephesus, not directly by Paul. And then there was Tychicus. 
Tychicus is one of those guys that his name shows up all over the New Testament. His name shows up all over Paul's letters. He could have very well been one of the church planters that worked out of the church at Ephesus to plant the churches, whether it was Colossae or Laodicea or Philadelphia or one of those churches. But whoever he was, he was mentioned by Paul in several of his letters that he was an encouraging brother to him, including the letter that Paul later on wrote to the church at Ephesus. Did you notice the pronoun change in verse 6? In verse 6, the pronoun listed there is the pronoun we. You remember the significance of the difference between we and they in the book of Acts? Luke was the one who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the one who wrote the book of Acts. So when he switches from we, he's, he was there. When he switches to they, he wasn't there. And now this is the first time that he switches back to we. The last time we saw Luke, Paul had left him in Philippi. I think that he was a pastor there in Philippi during this whole time from when Paul left there all the way until now. But now he's gathered with all the rest of these men, gathered in this dead end launch point called Troas. And all of those men and more, we don't know how many more, but there were more, they were waiting for Paul there when Paul got to Troas. Can you imagine how encouraging that was for Paul when he showed up at this place and all of these people that he had invested in along the way are there and gathered there? You know, it's always an encouraging thing. I I get really... um, It hurts my heart when I am around pastors or churches that have isolated themselves. It hurts my heart because they've isolated themselves in such a way that they don't see what God is doing in other places and they get so inwardly focused that that's all that they can see. It's always encouraging to hear the good things that God is doing in other places. I mean, we love to see what God's doing here, but it's always good when we hear of salvations and baptisms and church plants and things that are going on in other churches or from other churches. That's one of the reasons I love being a Southern Baptist. Listen to me, we're we're not just Southern Baptists because that's what we've always been. Amen? We're not just Southern Baptists because... You know, it's just the thing to do, or it's the style we like. Southern Baptist is not a style. We're not just Southern Baptists because our cooperative program gifts go to fund missions and all of those things, and we can talk about Lottie Moon, and, and, and that we can fund theologically sound seminaries and ethics and religious liberty and all those things that our cooperative program dollars go to fund. We're not just Southern Baptists because of our cooperative program. We're not just Southern Baptists so that we can fund local missions and international missions and and North American missions. Now, those are certainly some good reasons for being Southern Baptists. And we love those things. But I think one of the primary reasons that I love being Southern Baptist is because of the actual, real cooperation that we have with actual, real churches when we can relate, when we can have real relationships with other churches and with other church members and other pastors and other congregations. I love it when we get to come together with other churches in our associations. 
I love it when we get together, when we're able to get together with other churches in our state convention. And I think it's important that we do that as a church, but it's also important that each of us as individual believers, as each and as individual members of the church at Parkview, I think it's equally important that each of us have relationships with other believers from other churches. Each of us needs to hear what God is doing in places other than this. Each of us needs to hear how God is working in other believers' lives. Not as a way to steal them and get them to come here, but as a way that we can see what God is doing in other lives. If you truly desire to have an encouraging ministry, build relationships with other believers. I always remind us to build relationships with lost people. And we should build relationships with lost people so that we can share Jesus and so that we can live Jesus in front of them so that we can share the gospel with them. I always remind us to build relationships with lost people. I always remind us to build relationships with each other inside this church. We also need to build relationships with other believers outside this church. Listen, we're, <clears throat> we're not in competition with each other. Amen? It's not about building our kingdom here at Parkview. It's about us cooperating with other believers to build God's kingdom. Amen? Other believers from other churches need to be encouraged by hearing what God's doing here. And God's doing some really cool stuff here. And we need to encourage other believers with that. But we also need to be encouraged by what God's doing with them, what God's doing with them personally, and what God's doing in their churches. An encouraging, mem- an encouraging ministry is built on real relationships. It's also driven by a real hunger for the Word. Look at verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Amen. There wasn't a single amen to that. Man, it's right there in the Word. Now, come on. (laughs) Years ago, I I told a guy, I said, well, you know, if Paul could preach all day Sunday and then go on till midnight, it's okay if I preach a long time. And he looked at me and he said, well, Paul could raise the dead too. Until you can raise the dead, then you need to cut it off sometime. (laughs) I didn't like that. But if you think about it, Why wouldn't we long for that to happen? Why wouldn't we long to sit under the preaching, not just by me, whatever, but why wouldn't we long to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word for hours? Probably all kinds of reasons. But I think the bottom line is that we simply don't have a real hunger for God's Word. You know, we can talk about, uh, you know, we're 21st century people. We got, we got short attention spans. We got all this distraction. How, how long was the, the Graham game? Oh, wait, sorry. Getting personal. How long was the Beaver game? That Mountaineer game Friday night was probably about seven hours long. That game lasted forever. 
right? Football games last a long time. Baseball games last a long time. Most movies last over two hours. If you've ever sat and watched a NASCAR game, that's like watching some takes a NASCAR game. NASCAR race, that seems like it takes forever. Sorry to you NASCAR fans. (laughs) Why do we get antsy after 40 minutes of preaching? I'm not fussing at you, okay? I'm sorry if it seems like I'm fussing at you. I'm not fussing at you because y'all are very gracious. Y'all are very gracious to put up with my, with my preaching. You work hard to be attentive and you're very engaged. From the very first time that, that I preached to this congregation, I, I think I went home and I told Miranda, I said, it's just wonderful how engaged this congregation is when you preach to them. I've preached in congregations that, you know, about halfway through, I call them the, the Bible zippers, right? About halfway through, if they think that you're coming anywhere near a conclusion, buddy, they're zip. And you can hear that all. Don't think that you're hiding anything, okay? You can hear a Bible zip all over the congregation. But I appreciate how well you attend, right? And how well that you pay attention and you're engaged and all of that. But I don't think any of you, and me included, I don't think any of us would sign up to come to a service where we knew that we were going to be here anywhere from 6 to 12 hours just to listen to the preached Word. I've got a conference that some pastors and I go to once a year. And, I mean, these guys, these guys can really, really preach. Just fantastic preachers of the Word. But, I mean, these guys, they'll preach for an hour, hour and a half. And, you know... I think that's one of the reasons God called me to preach is because I can't sit that long. <laughs> but, but why can we sit on a cold bleacher for three hours in the drizzle and the rain or the snow? And we can't sit for 45 minutes listening to somebody pour their guts out from the Word. It's because we don't have a real hunger. We don't have a real hunger for what's happening here. The, the words that are used here to indicate what was going on was an alternating combination of what we do on Sunday mornings and what we do on Sunday evenings during our New Life gatherings. When verse 7 says that Paul talked with them, it comes from the word that we get the word dialogue from. So basically what Paul was doing was he was having a guided discussion with them during parts. But then later on it says that he prolonged his speech until midnight. That carries the idea of a monologue. So Paul was having periods where he was delivering monologue, where he was doing what this is right here, preaching. Maybe he was getting some amens. (laughs) But there wasn't discussion going on. But they were also having the dialogue where they could have guided discussion, teaching. So Paul was teaching that way and he was alternating back and forth somewhere between six and twelve hours. And they loved it. They longed for it. They hungered for it. David Platt, many of you uh, are familiar with the name David Platt. He was, up until recently, he was the president of our International Mission Board. And he's told a story. I've I've heard him tell this story. Um, I I don't have it written down anywhere, so I'll probably get some of the details wrong, but just bear with me and, and at least pick up the skeleton of what he was talking about. He tells the story of one time that he went on an overseas trip 
to teach to some folks in a persecuted house church. And as soon as he got into the city or whatever, some folks met him there, and in the dark of night, they shuffled him back and forth through a maze of streets, dark and everything. He didn't know where he was going, didn't know where they were taking him or anything. And and they finally show up to this place, and they, they knock on the door, and they open the door and come inside a dark room. And then all of a sudden, when they get inside the dark room, somebody pulls the chain on the single light bulb in the middle of the room. And from that single light bulb, he saw that the room was packed with folks just gathered around that one light. And his responsibility was to teach through one book of the New Testament. If my memory serves me right, he was supposed to teach through the book of John to these folks. Well, David Platt is not a, um, he's not brief. <laughs> so he taught for probably a few hours through the book of John to these folks. And then when he got done, he was, okay, we're, we're done. And they begged him to stay. He says, is there any more in that book of yours? So he started in Matthew and taught all the way through the New Testament. All that day, all that night, into the next day. Then when he got finished with the New Testament, they said, is that all your book has? So he started at the beginning. They had, I think, maybe another day, maybe another two days before they had to catch the flight out of there. So he started at Genesis 1-1 and began to work through the Old Testament and continued to teach to those people. I've seen plenty of people who have the look on their face like they're begging for preaching to be over with. But I've never experienced anything like that where people are begging for more. Begging. Just break the bread of life. I preached in places before that has a placard on the pulpit that says, Brothers, we would see Jesus. Do we long to see Jesus in His Word? Now listen, I, I know... I, um, when I do the recordings and stuff to put the sermons on the web, I have to listen to me. So I know that, <laughs> that I wouldn't want to listen to me for hours and hours on, on end. So I'm not saying that. My, my preaching is not worth listening to for hours on end. But the word I preach is. I heard somebody say it like this one time. They say, there are lots of men who can preach the gospel better than I do. But there is nobody who preaches a better gospel than I do. And that's what we should hunger for. You want to have an encouraging personal ministry? Then develop a hunger for the preached Word. And when you develop a hunger for the preached Word, don't keep that hunger to yourself. Have you ever noticed, and you know, I keep talking about ball games because that's what you do over Thanksgiving. I watched a lot of ball games. Amen. <laughs> but have you ever noticed when you're watching those ball games how hungry you get? I mean, after you just threw down about 40 pounds of Thanksgiving food, 
all of a sudden, after you see so many commercials for hamburgers and nachos and pizza and all of those things, you start to get, man, that, that might be pretty good, right? The reason that it you start feeling that way is because they're showing those things in such an appealing way that you start to want it yourself. You want to build a hunger in other people for the Word? Then show them how appealing it is. Make it beautiful to them. You'll never make other people hungry for the preached Word if you make it sound like, oh, i got to go to church again. If you make it sound like a drudgery or an obligation. Why in the world would anybody want to come to church to hear the preached Word if you make it sound like it's boring? Work to develop a hunger for the preached Word and encourage that hunger in others. Your encouraging ministry will be built on real relationships. It will also be driven by a real hunger for the preached Word. It will also be surrounded by real fellowship. Look at verses 8 through 12. Starting in verse 8, "...there were many lamps in the upper room where, there, where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting, uh, sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That's why we don't have anybody sit in the windows. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him up in his arms, he said, "'Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him.'" When Paul had gone up and broken bread and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I got a book on my shelf in my office in there. I meant to bring it up here with me and show it to you. Um, it's supposed to teach preachers how to preach in a way that's not boring. And it's one of my favorite books because I just... The content is good, but the title is probably the best title that I've ever ever seen. The title is called Saving Eutychus. <laughs> Telling preachers, don't preach in such a way that it's going to put your people to sleep. Saving Eutychus. Now, nobody really knows why Eutychus fell asleep. Some folks think that it could have been because of the fumes from the oil lamps or whatever. I think the boy just fell asleep. He was sitting in an open window, so I don't think that fumes from oil lamps are going to knock you out when you're sitting in an open window. It's possible, I guess. I don't know. And it doesn't really matter why, but the reality is it happened. <laughs> and there's not one of us in here who can't relate. Amen? All of us, me included, have been in a preaching service, and the eyes start to roll back in the head. Right? Amen, Don? <laughs> the eyes start to roll back in the head, and you're doing everything you can to fight sleep, and, 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 your, and your brain is telling you, well, if I just close them for just a second, it'll be okay. <laughs> and then you, uh, Right? We've all been in that place. I've told you before, it's one thing for you to fall asleep in the service. We're probably okay with that, but if I fall asleep while I'm preaching, then, then we're in trouble. So, so we'll just, we'll just be careful about that. Uh, that's not meant to be an excuse saying that we all have gone through that and we've all experienced that. It's not meant to, you know, get us off the hook about it. A good night's sleep on Saturday night and a good, strong, stout cup of coffee on Sunday morning will go a long way to help us fight through that. But still, it sometimes happens, just like it happened with this poor boy, Eutychus. Now, I don't really want to focus on 
this poor fellow falling asleep. Can you imagine what a hard time that he got after that? (laughs) As much as I teased Don, can you imagine how much Eutychus got teased in every service following that? What I want to focus on is what happened after he fell out of the window. Now, of course, this was a unique situation. It was unique. It was dealing with the Apostle Paul and all of that stuff. It was unique in that he died, and it was unique in that God used Paul to raise him from the dead. And by the way, he really did die, and Paul really did raise him from the dead. But that happened once, and it will probably never happen again. But what can and what should happen in every case is that this boy was cared for. The care that was displayed, the care that was shown for him. See, they stopped the service, didn't they? And they they went and they provided immediate need for this fellow. Nobody pressed on with their preset agenda. You know, we got a bulletin. We got to keep going with what the bulletin says. We can't we can't deviate from that. No, they didn't press on. They stopped what they were doing and they cared for one of their own. And then after that, they went back inside and they shared a meal together. And they talked some more. And they fellowshiped some more. And they did that all the way till the sun came up. The word that's translated conversed, when Paul conversed with them, it has a little bit different shade of meaning than what was happening before with the, with the dialogue and with the preaching. This wasn't a continuation of that. Before, Paul was preaching and, and carrying on uh, back and forth teaching with them. Now, this was just talk. They were just sharing fellowship with each other. They were just talking about everything. In other words, they were caring together, they were eating together, and they were sharing rich conversation together. You know what that's called? That's called real fellowship. I love our fellowship dinners, don't you? Nobody? Now, come on now. If I was going to get an amen from a group of Baptists, I think if I talk about a fellowship dinner. I love our fellowship dinners. And we're going to have one, a Christmas dinner on the 9th. So just go ahead and start, you know, getting rid of the turkey leftovers and get ready to have a big meal again. I look forward to us gathering together for dinners, for meals together. But that's not the extent of real fellowship. Real fellowship doesn't just happen around the tables in our fellowship hall. Real fellowship happens around the tables in our homes. It happens in living rooms and coffee shops and garages and backyards and tree stands. Real fellowship happens when believers get together to share life together. It's eating together, it's conversing together, it's sharing together, it's living life together. Real fellowship is caring for each other's needs. Real fellowship is helping each other when we hurt. So real fellowship involves letting us know, letting each other know when we hurt. It's celebrating with each other when we're happy. Real fellowship is laughing and crying and living and dying together. That's real fellowship. It's really being the family that we claim to be, isn't it? You know, we throw around words like brother and sister all the time. But real fellowship means that we're going to act like what those labels say that we are. I don't know anything more encouraging than that.
and sharing the love of family in a body of Christ together. That last word in verse 12, it's translated comforted in the ESV. That's this, if you circle in your Bible, you might want to circle that and draw a line up to verses 1 and 2, the word encourage. Because it's the same word. It's that same root word. So if Paul went to Troas on a mission of encouragement, his mission was accomplished. What about you? Are you on a mission of encouragement? Are you building your personal ministry on real relationships? Is your personal ministry driven by a hunger for the Word? Are you surrounding yourself with real fellowship? You know, we've just enjoyed Thanksgiving and we're getting ready to enter the Christmas season. We're going to come and decorate the sanctuary and it'll really feel like we're entering the Christmas season tonight. I can't think of a better gift that you can give your family, that you can give your friends, that you can give your church family, that you can give your co-workers, that you can give your neighbors, that you can give your community than becoming an encourager. It's probably the best gift that you can give. Wouldn't you like to give them that gift this year? And here's where it has to start. Remember I told you that Jesus used the the word that's translated encourager here. He used that word to describe the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. He said, but when the helper, that same word translated encourager, when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. Listen, real relationships, real hunger for the preached Word, real fellowship, that can only come from one place. It's not something that we can have programs and that we can gin up and that we can struggle to have on our own. No, those things only come from one place. That kind of encouragement can only come from the one that God has blessed us with to encourage us. And that's His own Holy Spirit. And the only way the Holy Spirit will live in you is if Jesus has saved you. So that's where it's all got to start. Has Jesus saved you? Are you saved? That means have you made Jesus Lord and Master and King of your life? Have you bowed your heart before Him as Lord and Master and Savior? Well, if you haven't, then let me give you the best encouragement that I can give you. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And when you do that, you'll be saved. That's the most encouraging news I can give you right now. And when you have done that, then you can be the encourager that God's called you to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the encouragement of Your Word. Lord, I thank You that that Your Spirit through Your Word pokes us and prods us and exhorts us and encourages us in ways where we lack. Father, I know I've been 
convicted to be a better encourager. Lord, I ask that Your Spirit would continue to do that, not just in my life, but in each of our lives. Father, that we would continually be seeking to build each other up in the faith. Now, Father, as Your Spirit has shown us where we lack, Father, I also ask that Your Spirit will show those who don't know Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, would show them their need for a Savior this morning. And Father, as Your Spirit shows us these things, Lord, I ask that You would give us the strength, the courage, the will to follow You. Father, however Your Spirit works in this time, we commit this time to Him. We commit this time to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.